episode 10, Gorilla Social Work Podcast. Welcome, everybody. We've got a good one for you today. We're going to be kicking off a series we're going to have on the show intermittently called Villains to Victory. So this will be an episode where we have someone who is a former client who has gone through the justice system, who's gone through all of their therapy completed, and it has fully integrated back into society. So they're going to come on the show. They're going to talk about what that process was like for them, what worked for them in treatment, what didn't work, you know, what they want the public to know about what they went through, maybe some of the insight there, and then also a word of wisdom or feedback to somebody who's currently working in the field or going through school and that will be working in the field. So it's going to be a really good one. Stay tuned for that. Uh, this episode of the Gorilla Social Work Podcast is brought to you, of course, by Alpha Counseling and Treatment, who is the largest and most respected provider for justice-involved clients in need of sexual offense-specific treatment services. Alpha, Alpha tongue-tied here, Alpha is also a JRI-certified agency providing moral recognition therapy and substance use disorder treatment to justice-involved clients. You can be confident that the treatment you will receive with Alpha will help you stay out of the criminal justice system. Alpha clinical professionals are trained and certified in cognitive behavioral interventions for sexual offending. This evidence-based program teaches participants strategies for avoiding sexual offending and related behaviors. The program places heavy emphasis on skill-building activities to assist with cognition, or excuse me, cognitive, social, emotional, and coping skills development. Visit their website today at utahsbesttherapy.com or call directly at 801-645-5455. This episode is also brought to you by Triple S Systems. Triple S provides scientific outcome measures for clinicians in the field of behavioral health. Outcome measures provide direction for both clients and treatment providers using evidence-based practice. Any program not using outcome measures to track their clients' progress and success has been scientifically proven to be less effective. And we will actually get into a discussion on the next episode of the Gorilla Social Work Podcast with some gentlemen from Triple S who actually give us more information on that. So, you want to tune into that one as well. Otherwise, we're going to go ahead and get into the first installment of Villains to Victory. The, yeah, I'd like uh, to actually. I'd like to go. I like to go lifting again. I'm not joking, man. Seriously, somebody said I've got. Pardon the term, retard strength. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's a weird any, compliment. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know now. I don't know now because I'm getting a little bit older. But generally, okay, any we, any we, given day with a little bit of warm up, I can play. put up two ninety five. Record this. <laughs> we I should talk about it is this. Recording. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're not you necessarily know, using it, but I always with do a little that bit of warm up. You hit two ninety five. We usually talk about like, something funny. Three or four times, like I, ha- I, w- I won't, I'll work out for a while and then something will come up and I'll stop working out and it'll be like a year and a half. And somebody's like, hey, you should go back to the gym, man. You look like you could be a good workout partner. Like off the couch? No, like, like, just, like first time in the gym after. That's what I'm saying. Eight like months. off the couch. Yeah. yeah, you get off the couch, you walk into the gym, you put up two And we'll, we'll do warm up sets. Like you'll, you'll do like a set, like, oh, I'll start off with a 45, do like two reps. Done. Yeah. Dude, you a remember more. the warm-up sets? I those get, things are crucial. Do you remember when yeah. I tried to? Yeah, I did yeah. like ten push-ups and then I put on like four hundo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. do it. That does not work out, man. <laughs> a pyramid, like just kind of 
couple of sets, do a couple of reps, then go up a couple of reps and go up. Yeah. I, I peak out at 295. I would love to have that kind of natural strength, man. That's I mean, I don't know that I'm getting, I'm 41 now. So it's like, eh, things yeah. are shrinking and I'm like, eh, that sucks. Yeah. But generally. You're an intimidating dude, though. Any like, given- just to look at. I'm like. <laughs> Well, because, I'm intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, you are because you're tall, and then like you're bald, but your head is symmetrical. Like <laughs> you got that symmetrical, dude. Yeah. If you had a goofy shaped head, if it was bro, a goofy shape, I, then that, it, it wouldn't be intimidating. That at is all. one thing I need to make sure that does not happen as I lose my hair. Because if th- you do, though, I won't. Dude, what, what if you, you do? I'll get hair, pl- I'll get hair plugs. <laughs> I'll get hair plugs. Daniel, Daniel Tosh did it. Hair plugs. Yeah. Did Daniel he really? Tosh did it. Yeah. He Tosh talked about it. Yeah. Of course he did. And he and he looks. Those good, do dude. look a lot that better. That dude's now, a sexy though. guy. Yeah. But I'm saying though, yeah, they're they don't look like they used to. You can't well, even notice. What it was now. it? Bill Burr, his stand up. We talked about that. He said at first it looked like they were stapling ant legs to people's heads. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Which it kind of did though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When it first came out, yeah, yeah. you're like, that not looks, now. That though. looks worse. No, I'm telling yeah. you, my head look my the top of my head looks like sloth's face on Goonies. Like that's <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty the top good of though. Head. You better yeah. keep that. You're like Worf. Got it. Yeah, You're exactly. From Star Trek, exactly. That's, that's good. The Dude. thing is, though, what it, what it depends on how how popular you are. Because like, think about I, I think about LeBron James because he had like a receding hairline for a while, mm-hmm. but then now it's just good. You're like, mm-hmm. whoa, what happened? It's kind of <laughs> obvious, but yeah, maybe yeah, nobody's gonna notice mine. Yeah. yeah, I just need to make sure if I'm starting to lose it, I'll be like, oh no, I need to go in right now. Yeah, yeah that's like one. Dude, the best way to find out is just buzz your head. And then you'll see. No, that's I, how I learned. That defeats yeah. the purpose of showing my misshapen head. No, I'm you just buzz do it. You don't like pick it. I guess. Wh- <laughs> no, I guess what I'm saying though is, is I'm saying like it's good. Like you're, because again, yeah, uh, you can tell that dude's probably strong. I like eyeball you, like guys do. I'm like, yeah, that guy's probably pretty strong. Okay. All the strength I had, to, I had to earn it. Like. There's none of this is natural. It's a weasel. Mike's off the couch strong. Yeah. 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 God knows how strong you'd be if you hit the weights regularly. I really need to. Now that I got a girlfriend, I'm realizing that like, mm. it's too late now. Well, that's usually when people hit the brakes on working (laughs) out. (laughs) I got to go. No, because there's like a, there's a lot like, I'm already asking a lot. I'm asking her to overcome a lot with my background in history, but having her go, well, he's a felon. And then the, a little bit of debt and blah blah blah, but at least he's a fat tubby bastard. <laughs> like, you know, like that. I kind of would like to like up my game a little bit so she could be like, "Well, he's cute." Yeah, some of the ladies like that, though, man. I mean, there's the dad bod. You can rock the dad bod, but if you're starting to agree. rock the grandpa bod, what about the Santa Santa bod? The Santa bod. The Santa bod. <laughs> that's creepy. I don't know how the dad bod became <laughs> a thing. That's I saw it's just, just real. I saw okay. no. a dude. I saw a dude in uh, Walmart the, the other day. Oh yeah. Hey, by the up. way, I want to make true. a conscious effort during this podcast not to say dude and bro. Well, I, I think during the last one, I was listening to the one we did with the polygraph with Ed. I think I actually said, "Dude, bro, bro, dude." Before I said anything else, <laughs> dude, bro, bro, dude. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Like I'm pretty sure. If you can timestamp that, but That's I saw impressive. this. I was down at um, the this store the other day. A drinking game. Yeah. Every How many times has Mason said, dude. dude, you take a shot? I don't yeah. mind the bro thing, but I, I mean, I don't know. I just say dude too much. I guess it's just I'm trying to, you know. It's good. Uh, well, listening to ourselves using... on these podcasts is a great self-correcting mechanism. Oh, my God. Like, dude. first off, I didn't realize my voice sounded as dumb as it does. Oh, it sounds but awful. There's nothing I can fix about that. It'll though. sound better if yeah. you put that microphone yeah. in your mouth. Uh, 
It sounded, yeah, it sounded better if you weren't ginger. Yeah, uh, well, you know. Yeah. I did have someone say that. I was that born in my that group way. Tonight. Yeah, it's weird. Like, you have like a, a ginger accent. It's yeah. Like, yeah, it's awful. Like you sound like I've, you I've, have been, red I've been hair. spending my you whole life. Like <laughs> you sound like your hair's red. Yeah. So, <laughs> I've been this. spending my whole life trying to overcome my deficiencies. You, meant, you mentioned Santa Bod. I saw the coolest thing in the store the other day. There was a dude, and he had. He was a, an older guy with white hair, Santa beard. It was a legit Santa beard. But he was in a onesie, a one, red onesie. That's actually cool. It wasn't like a Santa outfit. It was a red onesie. Like pajamas. Like pajamas yeah. with a fanny pack and a Santa hat on. He's, he's going not around giving saying, That's awesome. Yeah, okay. he's going around saying. But my kid looked at him and was like, he's like, he's everywhere. And I'm like, I know, bro. You got to be. On Bro. your P's and Q's, no, you got to watch out for that. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's kind of it's it's kind of funny. There's this app too for like kids. You can put like a, it's like Santa's like does this video about you. You take a picture that day and put it in there, and it shows a little. It's like he's watching me and all this other stuff. You just use it to manipulate him. <laughs> Santa calls you and too and says you're being naughty because you're not going to bed. You just have an app there. It's like, Man, what for like one month out of the year? You got free parenting. No, I do. There's one for almost everything. There's one of the Easter Bunny, but the Easter Bunny sounds like shit. Who no cares, cares about that? That's where you get the elf on the shelf. Legitly, yeah. it's a spy for Santa. Yeah. My kid sister uses that with her son. Kids get in line for that. I didn't think they'd fall for it. Yeah. They do, idiots. I mean, you got to you gotta like, you gotta gotta like play it up and do... She does all sorts of weird tricks. Dumb kids. <laughs> yeah, I saw a meme that addressed a uh, uh, flaw and all that. It's like, if Santa knows... Whether every kid's naughty or nice, how did he not know that Rudolph was getting bullied? It's like, well, well he doesn't care about reindeer. Maybe he loves them. No, he tortures them. <laughs> I mean, he, he has them pull him on a sleigh and he whips so them. So he only wanted him when his nose One time a year and then he throws them away. He probably sacrifices those reindeer every single year. And they're probably inbred to shit, too, because he wants like really strong reindeer, you know? So he's he like, gets the, side he gets the most jerky. He gets the right. most powerful reindeer <laughs> and only breeds PETA. them with the other most powerful reindeer. He does at the North Pole, <laughs> making Dude. sure all the fake animals Santa, are right. Santa versus PETA. That's a <laughs> oh, that Santa PETA. Hey, so before we get into this, so we have uh, we have Mike here, and this is going to be kind of a recurring theme. We're going to have some... Uh, some uh, yeah. Some people who have kind of done this and been through the programs like this and have successfully transitioned to delete, you know, are off paper, no longer serving their sentence. What does off paper mean? Yeah. So basically, they're no longer on probation or parole. They have no uh, adherence to probation and parole standards or anything like that. And um, they want to come be able to tell their story. So we're really grateful for you to be here, man. Like, honestly. Yeah. And, uh, and we're, um, and we're uh, going to be repeating this. This is going to be a theme that we're, we're going to do with guys. Um, we did want to address a couple questions on here. Um, one was one thing I'd like to address is our intro music. Now, here's the deal. Like, that music is tip-top, and anybody who listens to that says it's Linkin Park-esque or Disturb-esque is crazy. And plus, just because we don't download uh, – just because we don't listen to Cottonmouth Kings 24-7 – you, li- you little troll loser doesn't mean <laughs> that's that, very specific <laughs> doesn't mean that we're gonna you know that that our our intro music is awful most people like it so you yeah. paid like five bucks for it no we paid 20 <laughs> bucks for it yeah. yeah yeah i had to take out a 
payday loan. Yeah, you you tell me. How about you? How about you, you little turd? How about you compose something and send that to us and say, make this your intro <laughs> music? How's that? I'm talking to a very specific friend of mine. But anyway. <laughs> Wait, didn't we have two people, though, say something about it? Well, yeah, the other person, I don't know who that is. So <laughs> sorry that you didn't like that intro music, but it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. <laughs> so just fast forward, right? So, um, and then they, there was a question to Jeff too. What was that question, Justin? Yeah, Jeff's got to. Oh, he's got it. He's, he's going to read it off. Log, is, log uh, it up. Boot it up, dude. This is from uh, Death Metal Six Five Four Six. I like him already. <laughs> so, uh, this is actually a friend of mine. I know who you are, Death Metal. Uh, he, he's basically just uh, acknowledging that colleges are rife with that whole so- social justice warrior issue, and I, I, I think he was just kind of maybe empathizing a bit the the question though is what do you guys think about the narrative these days of rape culture so i love the podcast and he's wanting to get into the field so again what do you guys think about the narrative these days of rape culture is he talking about like all the stuff in the the media right now? i am assuming he's talking about the stuff in the universities about kind of the one in four are sexually assaulted Mm. but but obviously the stuff in the media has highlighted that so i mean like me, if you had asked me before all this stuff came out, uh, I might have had a different answer. So right now, this like the the sheer amount of celebrities and everybody that's that's been discovered. It, I, I have to say it it was surprising for me, and maybe it shouldn't be considering I work in this field, but it has been. Uh, with that said, though, there, there is an element to the idea of rape culture uh, that that I take issue with, and I, I think a lot of times sexual assault. The, the definition has become so broad to include uh, so many different variations of behavior that it takes away from victims of actual sexual assault. And, you know, I'm not the one that draws the line. I don't get to draw the line and decide which which definitions are OK or aren't OK. But it, it does seem to be that if we muddy the waters too much and describe almost any interaction that has a sexual component to it as sexual assault, that that can be that can be a harmful thing. So there there's a kind of a sitting on the fence answer for you, death metal six five four six or whatever. Yeah, it, it it's a touchy subject because I mean there's a lot of criticism that would come out for accusers. Obviously, I mean a lot of people are saying, well, why do you? And we touched on this, I think, in a previous podcast. Uh, yeah. Um. And okay, fair enough. The problem is 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 if you're if you're trying to get after a potential victim, um, you really don't know where they are on this. I mean, they they could have very well saw this. There's a strength in numbers thing we mentioned before, and now they're coming forward with this. Um, and I think, you know, to the degree that it is credible, we have to kind of honor that and, you know, support that. The one thing I would caution, though, is conflating um, everything that has a sexual undertone as like you were saying either sexual harassment or sexual abuse because if everything is then nothing is right you have to be careful with that because it makes it blurs the lines between what is genuinely sexually abusive and what is maybe offensive and maybe inappropriate and needs to be addressed i'm not saying don't do that but again if everything is just turns into that then then we're in, I think, in some real trouble. It, it doesn't do justice for people who were actually sexually abused at that point. And I think you, those people should not be marginalized in that. And the only message I would say to this is certainly um, on the college thing particularly, you know, 
um, ever since that Dear Colleague letter came out, and we touched about this in another podcast too, ever since that Dear Colleague letter came out and, um, you know, the, there was a, a, this one in five statistic, which has a lot of flaws to it. We don't, we went in, again, we won't get back into that. Um, I, just understand that an accusation like that can really be devastating to a person's college career just even if it's flawed or not. So I'm not saying don't accuse. I'm saying, of course, accuse if, if you feel like that's what you need to do. I'm just saying, can we have a little bit more integrity when we accuse people of something? Um, in other words, if I regret a sexual encounter, which I probably everybody in this room has <laughs> regretted a sexual encounter, nope. does that <laughs> does that does that equate to I was harassed or abused? And we all make poor decisions and um, you know, I think you really look at that and really ask yourself and dig deep to the point where if you felt abused, okay, I'm not going to try to argue with you. I'm saying, can you accuse with integrity is, is a little bit a better way of approaching it. Well, you guys, I don't know if you heard recently what was going on with uh, Matt Damon with what he said and how it was, he's being attacked over it. No. What do so you say? So I was online or whatever and you see like the, you go on Google or whatever, you type in something, it's like recent stories and stuff pop up, and it's like, Matt Damon, someone being put in his place over his quote about sexual abuse. I was like, oh, wow, what did he say? Because he's usually pretty level-headed, seems pretty... So I was like, I wanted to read it. So here's what he said. <clears throat> I do believe there's a spectrum of behavior. There's a difference between patting someone on the butt and rape or child molestation, right? Both of those behaviors need to be confronted and eradicated without question, but they shouldn't be conflated. Which I totally agree so that's what he's like getting attacked for what's wrong with that statement so so i think some of the arguments coming in on that are like well the whole thing is if it starts small like this and we allow it that's what turns into the bigger things which i won't argue that but the whole thing is is, minimizing the yeah maybe yeah maybe patting on the butt's gonna turn into child molestation well and and that's the mentality of if we're okay with this then we're okay with people getting away with it sounds like he's saying none of it's okay but I wouldn't want to, if I'm ferreting out a punishment or a reaction, I wouldn't want to ferret out the same punishment and reaction to child molestation versus a pat on the butt. Those are two very different things. Yeah. And if you don't, that's what I'm... You, that's what he's saying. Yeah, that's that's what I took well, out of it. Yeah. You're just not, you're just not, I mean, it's just looked at, I mean, <laughs> I, I remember one time, uh, and maybe guys look at it a little bit differently. I remember I had... Um, I went to, don't ask me why I was doing this, but I was hanging out with these two friends and we went to a gay bar. And there's these two girls that I was hanging out with. Um, I, I was dating one of them and they took me to a gay bar because one of her friends were there. And this gay guy came up and obviously he thought I was there for, you know, and uh, and he grabbed my ass. And I and a lot of time, and I just said, hey, you know, and they said, no, 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 that's, he's not like that. And I, I didn't feel at all like I was victimized. I think the dude just made a mistake. Right. I mean, now I understand as a female, I might be a little bit more intimidated physically because guys are just strong. I mean, this dude, I was not intimidated by him at all, you know, like physically. So that part of it that I think that plays into it. But again, it's different. I mean, that's that's a level of difference that shouldn't be conflated with those things. I think he's spot on there. Again, you're not I don't think he's undermining accusers at all. I think he's just saying. You know, don't it's not don't all equal. Mix those things yeah. up. Conflate them. M- Mike, what do you think, man? Like, what's, yeah, wh- what's your yeah. thought on this? As, <laughs> as because for you guys, I wonder how it like changes the dynamic when you're trying to meet ladies and stuff, and you got to ask tradition, like, "Hey, can I buy you a drink?" Stuff like that. Yeah, it's a that's a touchy subject for me because I'm kind of on this side of the fence. Mm-hmm. 
when it comes to those type of things. I and it's man, it's a, it's a mixed reaction for me. Okay, it's a, it's a mixed reaction because part of me is looking at all of these big name harassment cases. I mean, senators and movie stars and athletes, and part of me is just looking at that, going, "Come on, guys! Like, can you be successful and not feel entitled to just grab them?" Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mister. Well, 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 no, yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to name presidents or anything like that. But I mean, <laughs> you mean President saying, Trump? Can, yeah. I'm just yeah. saying, like, you can, can name their names. They're celebrities. Not feel Please entitled to yeah. just do whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I start looking at things and I'm like, well, what's how kind of like what you're saying? Can we call a spade a spade? And mm-hmm. I recently had a friend and or family member that went on a business trip and uh they were doing a business trip works for kind of a big company they put a lot of money into this they had open bars which business people that's bad and a guy got really hammered because they had an open bar from five till two (laughs) a.m and padded was being drunk and he padded somebody giving some attaboys apparently (laughs) couple of the ladies were really bothered by this and yeah. and, and felt victimized and mm-hmm. complained. Mm-hmm. And that guy was fired on the spot, mm-hmm. drunk, fired on the spot, and don't worry about your bags. We'll go get that for you and ship them to you. They got him a cab, dropped him off at the airport. He was across country mm-hmm. on the other side of the country and said, find your own way home. Well, see, Just I like that. Huh? I will- fired on the spot. This happened a couple of days ago. Well, whatever, and, man. I mean, yeah. okay, if you have a private company and you don't want that conduct by a, an employee and you want to fire him, do your thing. I mean, who cares? I'm not saying don't do that. I mean, if the girls felt uncomfortable, they have a right to feel uncomfortable. That is not child molestation, though. Don't say that that's the same thing. It's just not. It's not the same thing to equate well, those n- things. Nor is it rape. <clears throat> right. It's not. And you're do- again, you're doing a disservice to individuals who have actually experienced that. So, it, I mean, your level of uh, victimization is your level of victimization. And trying to pair that with somebody else and saying, yep, we're equals on this. And so we're in this, we're in this together, you know, where there's a brotherhood. No, it, it's, it's, there's, there's a big difference between those two things. And I'm not saying that those girls didn't feel victimized. I mean, you know, if I don't, if I had wanted unnecessary touching on a bar, this guy's really drunk and he's forcing himself on me or whatever. I could I could see how girls could feel victimized by that. Accuse away, that's fine. D- but don't equate it like I, I'm saying. It's not the same thing. That's all mm. I think. That, that statement's perfectly a, reasonable. It's a really hard call. I found uh, in my in my experience, having committed sex offenses and getting caught and prosecuted and going to prison. Um, one of the big eye openers for me was that a friend. Not my immediate victim, but someone that witnessed my assault was actually more traumatized than my actual victim. Wow. wow. And her and her parents wrote letters to the board and and it was it was a and then I had some tough moments in therapy dealing with some of the some of these revelations. And one of the things I, I realized was you don't get to pick the level of victimization. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get to, I get to choose what I'm going to do. Right. I don't get to choose 
how that's going to affect other people. Right. Right. And some and some some of my victims were like, that was really shitty. He should go to prison. Other than that, I don't really care. I'm moving on with my life. And some people that I that I thought I would have guessed or put money wouldn't have had a big effect were like, this was really traumatizing. I've got difficulty going down the street. Um I don't want to leave the house. And these were people I hadn't directly victimized. Yeah. And so it's kind of that's why I'm on the fence on this, because it's like, well, you're right. People that have been very victimized, abuse and rape and child molestation, that's very traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to some some other people that are making accusations or have had less I don't like the term less traumatic or less victimizing or less I look at it as in boundaries. There are levels of boundaries that perpetrators are willing to violate. So you've got someone that's had fewer boundaries violated or or tra- stomped on uh-huh. that it's it's hard to it's hard to tell their level of victimization. So so maybe that's a tough call. well I think uh, let me see if I can capture this a little bit here. Uh, Jeff and I we had uh, there was a metaphor that was used one time that I think was very effective in terms of explaining trauma. And so the metaphor is imagine your brain kind of like a, a factory, right? And the purpose of this factory is to process life events and turn those life events into memories. So trauma happens when the life event is simply too big for your factory to process, understand, absorb, and then, you know, change into a memory. And so what ends up happening is this stays in my forefront and I now look through a lens essentially at the world based on this trauma that I've experienced because I'm not I haven't really wrapped my mind around it. I haven't really processed it totally. And this is where the trauma comes in. And so it's not what you're saying is the level of abuse um, is not as um, important as the interpretation of that event by the person. I mean, it, it, because they could have a seemingly, you know, innocuous circumstance witnessing something that you know that a lot of people witnessed and it'd be very traumatic for them and it could take them a long time to get over whereas yeah i mean there's plenty of people who have been physically and sexually abused who are awfully resilient and it's never really an issue for them i think that's true and and that's fine i again i just go back to if you're truly victimized and you want to accuse please do so just accuse with integrity make sure you're being honest in your accusations that this isn't just a, um, an attempt to bring attention to, on yourself, and I don't, I don't know if that's even a case if people do that. I mean, I hate to think that somebody would, but unfortunately, you know, it's the world we live in sometimes. And I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't want to cite anybody specifically because I don't think about that. I'm just saying, if you're going to accuse, please do. Just accuse with accuse with integrity. You know, so yeah. You know. Well, and part of the worry I have with this thing, Jeff and I were talking about this the other day. Is by the way this comparison i know these are not the same thing but here's where i was talking with jeff i I said something to the effect of do you kind of worry with all this stuff coming out that 
people advocating for females and for people that have been abused are going to start to come across like some of the crossfitters we don't like or vegans that we don't like that are very attacking about it like mm-hmm. they won't just talk to someone who eats meat and be like oh hey did you know animals get treated this way it's like oh you piece of shit you eat it's like this attacking thing that shuts down conversation like that's a little bit of my worry of where that's starting to go because <clears throat> with this whole thing with matt damon like when i read it it makes it sound like you just said hey sexual abuse doesn't happen it's all the women's fault that's how they're treating it like they see this thing like i'm, I'm breaking all my matt damon dvds i'm never i'm like you make it sound like you said something horrible. Like, but that that stance shuts down any conversation. Is the point? So, if if you really feel like he is misguided or un, un, uneducated on the topic, mm-hmm. how do you talk to him about it? How do you open that door to other people that might think the same thing? If it's just this attacking, judging thing, well, then no one's going to talk, and then we're right back where we were. Yeah, and that might be just. I think it's a really emotional subject. Oh, sure. And yeah, I mean, you, we have to just honor that where the emotion is on this, and 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 people are going to make rash decisions emotionally based on those things. And again, you know, it kind of turns into I read. I don't really read what Matt Damon said and try to deconstruct that. I read what you know one of my buddies said, or I read some website about their interpretation of it that I trust, mm-hmm. and then I got mad, right? You know, so um, and, and that happens. So I mean. It, and that some of it's static, other of it is, you know, I wonder if those people would be willing to have, you know, a dialogue and a conversation. Probably not. But, you know, and if that's the case, then, you know. Well, look, that, I mean, that just happened here in this session. I, I'd opened up by answering Death Metal's uh, question by saying that there's a lot more nuance to sexual assault and then, you know, uh, treating things. Uh, everything as the worst possible thing does a disservice. But then Mike pointed out that you don't get to choose the effect the the trauma effect the victims have i mean you mike you put it a lot more eloquently than i did but in, in a sense you disagreed with a piece of what i was saying and you did it in a rational way and you and i are going to still leave friends today yeah you know what i mean well so i mean he might beat you up in the parking lot. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think it's well, well, i don't know man <laughs> 295 <laughs> bitch but like yeah. no i i learned in therapy like you're trying to hit a nor like reality. And so you can minimizing stuff and maximizing it. It's, it's the same spectrum. You're still the same distance away. I remember in therapy, it, I did the therapy program. I've done it. I've completed it twice. Plus aftercare, um, completed it on the streets. I've completed it in, in the prison. And at one point they're talking about risk factors and, and, women and children and and you can you can turn women and children from an object to be sexualized you're minimalizing their humanity and and what you're doing you can maximize that and go the completely the other extreme to where you've bypassed human with thoughts and feelings and you've just made them a risk factor right they're just as objectified but once at one extreme you've made them an object at the other extreme, you've still bypassed human and made them a risk factor. Mm-hmm. And I remember years back, I'd completed therapy and got out and was applying, trying to get a job. And I went to a temp service and it was all women. And they were beautiful. And what, the lady that ran it looked like Jennifer Aniston and they were like 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. And they terrified me. I'm 250 pounds and I'm dead serious. I sat in the corner in a chair. Why did they terrify you? Because they were risk factors. 
Okay. They were oh. attractive women, and I was a sex offender, and I had to tell them about my history. Can I explain a little bit about risk factors? Just really quick. Yeah, sure. Just uh, so, just uh, we talked about this in a previous podcast. For any of those listening on this one, like, so risk factor for you know Mike, the way this is taught is any a risk factor is anything that this could be a person, this could be a place, this could be a thing, uh, you know, this could be a thought, a feeling. <clears throat> Anything that increases the likelihood that he's either going to engage in some sort of sexual behavior problem or violate the terms of his probation or parole. And so explain how a 100-pound girl might might represent that. Um, so I went to prison for sexual assault, groping women over their clothing, groping their breasts over their clothing and, and running away. Those are what my charges boil down to. Um and so sometimes it's they're concerned of like, okay, well, what triggers you? What triggers your behaviors? And, and of course, it, for me, it, an attractive, attractive females do that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also more than just what, what might get me to – when I look at risk factors, it's not just what might cause me to have an impulse to offend. It's also what might lead to an accusation. Sure. I'm I'm also worried about what you're going to think and do with it. So it's it was there was fear. It was which is hard to control for. And I mean, I guess proximity if you're working in some meat packing factory with a bunch of dudes, that's less risk than being at this place with a bunch of beautiful women. Right. I mean, just by virtue of proximity, right. I'm not around them, right? And and it kind of it kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with accusations and and everyone seems to be going in extremes one way or the other. Yeah. Nobody wants to get caught on the on the bad on the on the bad side of that equation. We're like, hey yeah, that guy, you shouldn't give him a he got drunk and and patted a girl on the ass and now he's selling a football team or whatever's going on. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be on the on the bad side of that. But I think the extreme reactions in either way, whether it's with accusations or whether it's in, in from my side of the fence where it comes down to, well, I'm just trying to get to the point where in therapy, I think you're just trying to get clients to the point where they see people as people, sure. human beings with lives and feelings and plans and, and they have rights and they have boundaries and space and, and you don't get to just grab them, by, grab them by the ass. You don't get mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. Um, you have to see them as a human being. Some therapy programs are so worried that I'm going to reoffend that, like we we're saying, you bypass human and you go from being an object to be sexualized to being a risk factor that's to be feared. Mm -hmm. Because what if they accuse me of something? I'm not going to get believed. You accuse me of a sex, any sort of a sexual misconduct. You're going to believe the person accusing me. Right. So it's not – you're not in a position – like a power position. I think of like Roy Moore, right? Okay. Um, and the accusations against him, which are obviously not great. He can come from his perspective and say, nope, that never happened. None of these people are credible. Well, there's no previous charges. Like your, your record in and of itself, um, like if somebody happened to stumble upon the registry, for example – and they looked up your record, uh, and anybody you know says, "Okay, I'm just I going am not to not a fun Google, right? I'm going to <laughs> accuse this guy. I'm going to accuse this guy of doing something, which, which I mean, you would hope that that wouldn't happen. Um, but 
Um, you know, it also brings up this idea that uh, normal office banter between guys and gals and whatever, maybe flirting a little bit, would be looked at differently through a some type of mental filter that I'm looking through that, oh, you know, Mike's an offender. And so I'd judge your behavior differently based on that if I knew that about you. And if I threw an accusation out there, again, if it's your word against theirs and you already have this history on your account, you're in a much less advantage than somebody like Roy Moore. Like, you, I mean, you have another, yeah. you say, no, that well, never happened. And people it's are gonna a bit say, pessimistic, oh. but my experience and my reality, you know, they say on that, they say you're innocent until proven guilty. Sure. I think there's a subtext line after that that says, but once you've been proven guilty, you're always guilty. Yeah. I'll bet. And yeah. so like. Well, what I does mean, it even say on your registry? Do you know? Uh, Let's pull it, it up. It says a bunch of stuff. I mean, if you're going by charges, names, it's going to yeah. say two counts of sexual abuse of a child and three yeah. counts of forcible sexual assault. And that was a plea bargain. So right. it was five, one to 15s. Well, I want to I want to talk a little bit about what those mean, because those if you if you hear those, that sounds scary. Yeah, that's not fun to put on a job application. But it doesn't really tell the story of, of really. And and so anybody who's listening to this um, as a citizen, I mean, obviously, anybody has the has the the right to look up the registry. The one thing I would encourage you guys to do is if you go on there, um, there's some there's a before entering this website, please read the following. I really take some time to do that. Um, you know, there are like there's a there's a code here that says members of the public are not allowed to use this information to harass or threaten offenders or members of their families and um, and harassment stalking or threats against offenders or their families are prohibited and doing so may violate Utah criminal laws. Again, I I want people to be rational about this and just think about this. Um, the more if and this again, if this this would be a much simpler argument if it was lock them up and throw away the key, right? Clearly, Mike's a great example of that's not going to happen. Eventually, these these you know anybody who's going through the program and taking it seriously and rehabilitating themselves, they're going to be in the community. The question you have to ask yourself is what makes them safer to the community, and what makes guys safer to the community is that they have a stake in the community. If they feel like they belong to a community and they want to thrive in that community and they want that community to thrive, so the more of an outsider people feel it doesn't do anybody any good. So certainly you have the right to look on the registry and you're privy to that information. I think a good thing would be is maybe consider that the information that you find on there is not necessarily um, an accurate depiction of what happened. Um, And whether or not you're ever going to be able to talk to that person, I don't know. Um, I think you just take it with a grain, not with a grain of salt. I'm saying... There's more to the story than simply these charges that are listed under these dudes' pictures. That fair to say? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I've, <clears throat> I have never, and I've had, if you pull my entire file, it's over 15 years. It's probably eight, nine inches thick. Sure. It's really big. I have never seen a document that was accurate. Yeah. Like, I mean, 100% accurate. 100% accurate. Because this says description I mean, they, of this they was. They generally. Yeah, in my case, I mean, I've seen someone that's they're completely wrong. Mm-hmm. In my case, you get the gist of it, but it's not, they're not accurate. And they don't, like you said, they're there to state things legally. Right. Not well, because these are accurate. Right. These are, these are code. These are, you, these are code law. So 
This says in 2003, you're convicted of sexual abuse of a child, a second degree felony, and forcible sexual abuse, a second degree felony. But again, as I look at those, those those are are scary charges. I look at that, and my mind if I'm if I'm not educated in this, my mind goes a hundred miles an hour. Right? Oh yeah. So I mean, give us a breakdown. Not, no graphic details or anything, but I mean, you know, tell us what happened. Uh, I was a college student uh, going to college, trying to get a professional degree. Um, had a lot of self esteem, self worth issues. Just deeply believed I was going to fail. And that I wouldn't succeed and was terrified of failing. Um, what field were you going into? Wanted to go into medicine. I was actually getting, I was studying biology, getting ready to, when my offenses took place, I was finished, I was in my last semester of college, getting ready to apply to med school, taking my MCATs. That's pretty cutthroat, right? It was very high stress. Very, I, I knew, I got by on sheer stubbornness. I had I knew I had friends that were brilliant and would read a book and they'd be done and then I'd spend twelve hours in the library. We'd get the same grade on a test, but I'd I'd spend twelve hours cramming it in my brain. You had to work for it. Yeah, yeah, that's um, intimidating. But I grew up with a lot of learning disabilities and just kind of knew that I was those tapes you learn and you repeat in your head. I knew from a very early age that somehow I was just less. Yeah, and it scared me. And a lot of therapy terms here that. What it boils down to is a time came in my life where things were going to start to be out of my control. Uh The destiny of my life was applying to med schools, asking for letters of recommendation, taking final exams. Other people were now going to make decisions that affected my life. And I firmly believed on the inside that they would see through this ruse and just say, yeah, you're, you're a piece of crap. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm a piece of crap. And so that terrified me. Not having control out of my my life terrified me. So you felt like your stubbornness and hard work could get you so far, but eventually people would see through that and see that ultimately I felt it was a facade. I felt like I I was... This guy's not the right guy. I grew up LDS. I went on a mission. I was the favorite kid in my family. I was that all-around good guy. Yeah. And... I didn't believe it on the inside. And then I started acting out. I, I used masturbation as a coping mechanism, uh, got into stress relief, stress relief. Yeah. Just that's how I dealt with life. And then that, but then I didn't want to address that. And so that kind of just like anything that you don't take care of and monitor, if you're just going to let it go wild because I'm trying to hold up this wall of my life, desperately needing your approval. Well, then that starts to run rampant. And I, I watched psychologically my behaviors get more and more deviant, more and more inappropriate. Uh-huh. And it ended up, I started with, I mean, it's a long, long journey, but as a there progression. Was a progr- there, was there was a progression a, a, a of pro- sexual behavior problems yes, over time. Yes, escalating progression, much like a drug addiction. Because people, I mean, you look at like an average dude masturbating because he's stressed out and feeling better. There are probably a lot of guys who do that on a regular right. basis. But well, what I was just going to say is, yeah, when that's going on, you know, having gone through treatment like you have, I can obviously tell you've learned a lot about yourself and what's going on. But rewinding back to that moment, it can be kind of like a, eh, maybe I'm kind of doing this a lot. But you don't really think yeah. of where that can actually yeah. go. So in the moment, you're kind of flying blind, really. It's Yeah. And a lot of people, I mean, I think we, we've talked about this in our in our individual sessions, but 
at one point I was taking a lot of psychology classes, wanted mm-hmm. to be a psych major, and I was taking taking abnormal psych and social psych. And that's a good class to take if you want to like realize all the problems you have. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I remember they were talking about sexual deviancy, and there was like a list. There was like a list of. I mean, it started off with like. I mean, of course, there was masturbation and pornography, and then there was like stealing undergarments, and then there was like exhibitionism, and then there was like verbal sexual harassment, shouting things out, and then there was like peeping in windows, and there was this gradual progression to where that now you're like slapping people on the ass or exposing yourself, and then all of a sudden you're you're groping people, and then it, and it showed this progression. And I remember at one point in my life going looking at that. In class, looking at this textbook and going, well, I've done that, and I've done this, and I've done this. And this line at the end of it was, here's rape and murder and child molestation at the far end of this deviant spectrum. Yeah. And that was an eye-opener for me. That was kind of scary. But to answer your original question, yeah. um, my path, le- I was I started down that progression, and I was groping people. Uh-huh. Um running around the, the college town that I was at, there was about a two and a half month period where in my progression, I realized that I thought it would be <clears throat> exciting and I would get some sort of thrill and satisfaction from groping women's breasts and running away. Mm-hmm. And that's what I started doing. Mm-hmm. And that became my, for lack of a better term, my drug of choice. That was my, my, my assault pattern yeah. was to grope women, then feel bad about that. Then oh, I'm not going to do this again. And then there was a, a, a cycle of escalation where my, the stress from my life and it ended up being that for me, taking a lot of years of therapy and condensing it down, it was a way that I made was able to feel a false sense of security and control mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm, I came to a point where my college career is about to end. I've got to go start down a professional career and people are going to start making decisions. And I thought they were going to see through this facade of my life and see that I was just a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And so I felt out of control in my life. I didn't, I feel, and so I would, I would lie to myself and be like, well, see that girl. If I go grope her, then I get this false sense of control. Like mm-hmm. she can't do anything. She doesn't know this is going to happen. I'm about to go do this. No one can stop me from doing this. Mm-hmm. That was my end goal. I just wanted to grope their breasts and leave. Mm-hmm. It, it's how I felt back in control. I gained my power. I had a therapist one time said, it's a lot like dad comes home from work and he's really mad because of his job and he hits little Billy who's four and little Billy looks up and sees that dad is three times his size and four times his dad's a giant and he doesn't know what to do. So what does little Billy do? He turns around and kicks the dog. Yeah. And he kicks the dog because all of a sudden little Billy gains a sense of power and control in his life. My deviant behavior, for me, that's where that kind of went. So, I mean, wanting power and control and security, especially with all the hard work you were doing, I don't think those are big asks. But the way it manifested clearly was inappropriate, abusive. Yeah, it really was. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it stemmed from just bad beliefs about myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you're I, a pretty smart dude. I'm a fairly educated guy. Dude, I'm not I'm not dumb. I don't think guy, I'm brilliant, but I'm not dumb. This guy like solved a crime on his own. Like all on his own. And the funny <laughs> thing was he brought it to the police and they didn't do shit about it. Can you talk about that? Oh, I This had, is a great story, by oh, the way. Oh, no joke. Like I, totally solved the crime. I had a guy like 
I had my identity stolen. So I was hanging out with some friends. It was late. I went to McDonald's at like 1130, you know, drive through, pulled the wallet out, paid for it. And I'm like, um, I have to leave the drive through seatbelts on. So I didn't want to stick my wallet in my pocket. I stuck it in the console of my car <clears throat> and I forgot about it. And then like an idiot, I left my window down, parked in my driveway with my wallet sitting in the console. Well, somebody, this is a Friday. So somebody Friday night or Saturday morning walked by, saw a car with the window down. Looked in, saw a wallet, took it. And then several hours, 9 o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from my bank saying, hey, are you trying to buy something from Walmart.com, 500 bucks?" And no, and I go looking for my wallet, has gone. So long story short, somebody stole it and was running around town racking up charges. Well, I got really mad because I'm like, I'm on parole. I'm trying to rebuild a life. You don't just get to hit me for three grand and think I'm just going to take that. Right. So I... I called my bank and I'm like, well, what, where are these, where, where's he charging stuff? And they were telling me, well, we went to this gas station at the Smiths. I'm like, well, that's a half a block away from my house. And then he went, well, then he went over here at this time and at this place. And I'm like, well, that's over by where I live too. And, and I realized he was going around the neighborhood and I thought, well, this, whoever stole my wallet, like is doing this right now. And it's in the neighborhood. This guy probably lives in the neighborhood. And I thought, well, it, it's got to be on camera. So I decided I'm going to go figure out who this guy is. So I went around to the stores and I talked to managers and said, hey, can I look at your security footage? I just want to see if I can get a picture of this guy or a license plate. Because it was a gas station. He got gas. So I yeah. thought maybe if I get a license plate, I can figure out who this guy is. And couldn't do it. And so long story short, I went, went to multiple stores and ended up finding a clear picture. of. Now, they're not going to give you footage because you need a warrant to get that. Right. But you can look at their security camera and there's a clear picture on their screen. So you just take your phone out and snap a picture of their computer screen. You asked them to do that though, right? Yeah. The yeah. managers, every manager was totally cool and, and the cooperative. Like, oh, you want to come share footage? Sure. Yeah. Because I would go in there and say, this guy's actively like two hours ago, this guy was in your store using my identity and card to buy stuff. Yeah. Anyway, I can look at your security footage. How did you figure out his name? Like you, you had his picture, and then you well, yeah. His- so I, I got a clear couple of pictures of him. Still have them on my phone, actually. If you want to yeah. see him, uh, uh, got a clear picture of him, and then a family member said, "Well," because I said, "I'm pretty sure this guy's got to be local." Yeah, there's no way that you could do this. And she said, "Well, there's a local community webpage," and so she took it and put it on the local community webpage and said, "Hey, this guy is currently." doing identity theft right now like anybody know who he is and somebody said oh yeah i know who that guy is here's his name and i was looking at his pictures and i re- I thought mm, that guy's probably a felon yeah because you could tell from the tats i mean if you've ever been to prison you can spot a prison tat and so uh yeah i we googled it i got his name i i called apmp and said hey you got this guy on parole and I, yeah we do he's actively stealing my identity right now as we're talking and we, and so yeah, we actually tracked him down and found him, and <laughs> nice. Wow. They got a rat. I mean, it took all day on a Saturday to try and figure out. And then I found out that nobody cared. Did anything happen? Uh, I think I think he went back to prison, uh, but for that or other, I, you know, I think you know. just other parole violations. But like, I <laughs> which found, which makes sense. Well, I guess he obviously a crime. Yeah, the, dude. it's an active investigation. We're all no, no, it's actually solved. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like, I shut. got really mad because nobody would do want to do anything. I'm like, do I literally got to go find this guy, snatch him up, and drag him like here 
this guy is stealing my identity. Right. Because nobody cares. And then when I would go to the banks and I talked to them, they didn't care. Like, if you're going to commit a crime, identity theft. That's the thing to do. Because no one cares. Yeah. The no, that's were, totally true. That happened to my brother, and literally just no one does anything. No yeah, one, the the bank, credit the agencies me, don't care. Police really don't care. The bank told me if as long if it's less than <laughs> yeah. three thousand dollars, less than yeah. five thousand dollars. Yeah, my brother had this this kid move in with him. He was trying to cut down on the cost of his mortgage. So this kid is just basically what was happening. He was just taking all the credit card applications, just filling them out, filling them out, filling them out, and then racking stuff up. So he gets caught, goes to jail, gets gets out, comes back to my brother's house when they weren't home. Opens the mail. So he has a PO and everything. Opens the mail. Starts doing it again. My brother calls him. He's like, well, not really a lot we can do. Like, well, <laughs> who, who else would it be? You know who it is. He's like, well, he, yeah. he's just going to deny it. You're like, well, that's how this works. Yeah. They, they yeah I love anything. I love though, he didn't do it. Yeah. And you're like, I love okay, having, I believe him. I just yeah. watched like forensic files and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, all the pieces fit. What happens? Well, they they said they couldn't do anything. Like, what? <laughs> like, there's uh, yeah. I have I have proof. I have proof that like the the crime has been solved at that point, and they still didn't do anything. That's- yeah, my dad had a car stolen. This was like seven or eight years ago. A, a old car stolen out of a rental property garage, and so we really yeah. How are we going to find out who it is? There's no way to find out who it is. And so I just on a hunch was just like I'm just going to go sit out there see if these guys like try to come back. And so this is this story gets even better. So I'm sitting at the top of the street, just waiting, waiting, and eh, nothing's gonna happen. This is a waste of my time. All of a sudden, this truck pulls up and just starts backing in the driveway. He's like, "You gotta be kidding me!" A bunch of dudes jump out, start opening the garage. So I call the police. So someone comes over, just talking to him for a while, and I can just see him like laughing, having a good time. And I'm like, "Okay." And then the truck leaves. He, officer comes over to my car. He's like, "Well, they said they didn't do it. Someone had him said it was their, their garage and they needed to have it cleaned out. So they were just here for that. So not really much I can do. <laughs> I was like, okay. And so then about a week later, an officer calls my dad. He's like, hey, we found your car. This guy down, this guy had it, was trying to register it. And my dad's like, well, what did you do? He's like, well, he said he wasn't the one that stole it, so there's nothing we can do. I was like, what? Well, that just can't do anything. <laughs> he said he didn't do we, it. We, so... caught, we caught him both times. Yeah. I was like, wow. Oh, that's oh, what? Yeah. So yeah. come get your car. Yeah. You should just be happy. I'm like, what? Well, just I get mean, away with it. Again, I, I like that example because, I mean, you are a smart dude. And I think your your progress through all this is is um, a pretty good story. You know, I, how long were you in prison for total? Total? Almost. 13 years. I mean, right. on and off, I've probably done 95%. I expirated a sentence of 1 to 15. Can you explain what expiration means? Um, it basically means they make you do every single day. Okay. So you, you, you. So in, in Utah, there's three sentences, actually. Yeah. There's five years, 15 years, and life. So a zero to five, a one to 15, and a five to and life. And a five to life. Okay. Sometimes you'll get a three to life or a two to life, but it's basically. And anywhere in between. Five years, 15 years, and life. Right. Not counting misdemeanors, right? Because if you actually read the paragraph in the in the Utah Code book, it says the it is the expectation. This is a quote, almost word for word. It is the expectation that the inmate will do the entirety of their sentencing category unless otherwise indicated by the unfettered discretion of the board. So the board of uh, the BOPP, the board yeah. of parole and pardons, they can um, terminate you from your parole early. Yep. If they so choose, if they have credible enough evidence to say that you're no longer a, a significant risk. Right. right. Okay. So you can get paroled, which is your your time is still ticking and you're on parole. You can get terminated. Your sentence is ended early or you can get expirated, which is which is what the board did in my case. They opted to let me do every single day of my sentence. And they actually said almost that word for word. 
when I was talking to my parole officer this time, I put in for like 90 days short. Like, mm-hmm. would you give me a 90 days off my sentence, a 90-day nope. time cut? And they said, we're opting for the termination. And you had two, two 1 to 15s. I had five 1 to 15s five concurrent. One to, all ran concurrent. All concurrent. So it's and, basically one. Right. And everybody, so concurrent means they're all done at the same time. Consecutive would mean they were back to back. So you would start You'd the other You'd have to finish one before you do another one. Right. Well, that's a, I mean, uh, that was a long time. And I mean, like the, the treatment, you've had multiple things with treatment, right? I mean, multiple bouts of yeah, how, how much total treatment have you done? Oh, sweet madness. Uh, let me think. It's you can ballpark it. You don't got to go down to like the minute. It's got to yeah. be between six and eight years. Jeez, lot, I mean, wow. either wow. officially doing in programs. I was kicked out of a program in a halfway house and sent back to prison. Uh, I've completed the therapy program twice. I've done aftercare. So what happened with the program you got kicked out of? What was going on there? Um, That was at the halfway house the first time. Uh, I was sent. <laughs> I was kicked out of... <laughs> I was sent back for failure to complete complete the program, and if you read the board warrant, I was returned to prison because I might reoffend. That was mm. the, almost an exact quote. My first board warrant says he hasn't violated his parole, broken the law, but we think he might. So or this was due to you not, getting kicked out of the program. Yeah, is this was clear? way. That, now, once again, this was the program close to ten years ago. Uh, so okay. it wasn't the greatest in the halfway houses. So you not completing the program, what did that mean? Like what, what was going on? Um, it's, a, it's a parole stipulation to finish the therapy program. Mm. And if you don't, then you, if you get removed from therapy, then you're, you violated your parole. Yeah. And then Are you, you asking so wh- him why he got removed? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, that kind of helped anyways because we have to explain some of this. A lot of people aren't familiar with the terminology. Okay. So why did your treatment program feel like you weren't? eligible to complete or what did the, what was going on for you um, where they, they said ah, he's not doing my, it let's kick him out i'm not i'm not sure actually the paperwork says literally they said well we're concerned that he might reoffend or like were, we, were you refusing or you didn't nope. want to do it or uh it was well there was there was a lot of interesting stuff going on in the the halfway house i i did not get along well with my my shift leader at the time mm-hmm um, that was a really bad caustic relationship for both of us. I think the first day that I got there, I'd been out less than 24 hours and I sat down in her office and the first thing she said to me was, I'd send you back to prison right now if I could, but I don't think the director would sign the paperwork if I put yeah. it across her desk. Well, well, a shift leader is basically your primary a, point of contact there. It's a parole Essentially, officer your probation in the halfway house. Right, yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay. Okay. Probation officer, parole officer at the halfway house. But, so, that was, so that was the tone that started your treatment so to speak it put me on the defensive yeah, yeah. it was it wasn't a fun a fun environment back then mm-hmm. was, so how long were you in that program how long was that for jeez seven and a half months so good while then i think yeah. i was i was there uh yeah i think the first the first well four of the seven and a half months i was on lockdown mm-hmm. well what what were they what were they saying like what were they looking at when they said that you're you might reoffend. Um, I had journaled some stuff. I mean, one I had a, I had a, I had some issues with masturbation in the halfway house. Yeah. That was a against the rules. That was a therapy violation. They didn't want you masturbating. That was one of my primary coping mechanisms. Some of it was acting out a little bit. 
this was back in the day. Um, I can't. I gotta re rephrase that. I can't use the term a little bit. That seems minimizing to me. So I was acting out, um, and that that had made them gave them some some concerns. I'd had a really bad relationship with my shift leader. Uh, she would read. She would go read the therapist notes. And then this, but yeah, in fact, I actually kind of think actually they changed the therapy policy around the time this happened because it became a really big, and then she would go into my room and she'd get my journal and read my therapy journal then call me up and yell at me for stuff that was said in therapy and wow. threaten me for stuff. And, and so, but I, I think that the, the straw that broke the camel's back was we had a very attractive, uh, prison or a, a, one of the guards was probably 24 mm -hmm. and very attractive. And I had journaled that I thought she was attractive and that that was, it bothered me that I was attracted to her and that she was a guard and I was an inmate. So that my solution was I was going to avoid her. She walked in her room. I was going to go leave the other mm -hmm. way. And my shift leader had searched my room and gotten my therapy journal and read this and then threw a big fit about it. And so when, when you read my board warrant, it literally says he's not committed a crime. He's not reoffended, but we think he might hmm. not. We think he did. We think he might. And that's what got me sent back the first time. So the therapy journal, was this something you did on your own or this no, therapy was, wanted you to do this? It was forced. It was part of the program. Oh, you wow. had to journal daily and you had to, they would do a check where you had to share randomly. Somebody would say like, oh, read your Thursday journal or whatnot. Yeah. Or your therapist could spot check it. And if you weren't journaling, you had to get you'd get in trouble. I have a bad – none of my journaling experiences have been fun. It always seems to be, in my opinion, less therapeutic. When it's coerced, when it's forced in a treatment program, it seems to be less a therapeutic tool and more of a – fact-finding mission to gather stuff I can use. Way to say well, yeah, gotcha. especially yeah. when they're actually reading through it, <laughs> yeah. finding facts. Yeah, I, 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 I heard, I heard yeah. years later that about that same time, they changed their policies to where AP&P no longer had access. Because at one point... I, it, I remember what you're talking about. I was actually working there uh, probably around the time that you were there. I don't, I don't remember. You don't know if you remember me. Yeah, but I don't yeah, think so. Yeah, but uh, I... I remember that policy and that was kind of how things were. I mean, done. There, well, it, it all broke down to, I, I finally had enough and I walked into my therapist's office and I said, I will, I'll no longer be participating in therapy. Mm. And he was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I said, I'll do this. I'll talk to you and I'll do these programs, but I can't, I'm not going to journal. I'm not going to share. And I told, I said, every time, every time you write something in that computer, my, my shift leader, who's can't stand me, goes and reads it, what you write. And then calls me up to the bubble and yells at me for anything that I tell you about, or she reads my yeah. therapy journals. And, and I, and so then there was this huge administrative thing where she got called in and, and the director was there and the head of therapy was there and she got reprimanded for doing stuff that they considered was inappropriate. And that's when I knew I was done. She looked at me and became super nice and polite and formal. And I thought I'm done. I'm hit. It's going to take, uh, it's going to take her just a, another couple months and I'll be back in prison. And well, it did. You make a good point though. And I think if you're a treatment provider, you really have to take this into consideration. I mean, and I, and I think it's, it's weird that if you guys are in a 
in a halfway house in a, in a high-intensity residential facility, inpatient, and you're reporting this stuff, that should be normal. Like if you're reporting fantasies or you know, problematic sexual behaviors, I mean, that's what the expect. I mean, if you're a perfect angel and you don't do anything, my question would be, why are you there? If you yeah. if you don't now again, I'm not I'm not saying that some people aren't dangerous and need to go back to prison. What I'm saying is, if you need to come to a halfway house in a high intensity residential inpatient treatment facility, guys are going to have problems because if they don't have problems, why would you send them there? Like match the level of service to the offender. So the fact that those are there, and I'm glad they made that rule because. From an APMP, like if I'm a law enforcement official, I'm going to look at things therapeutically, not from a therapeutic standpoint. I'm going to look at yeah. things from a from a police officer standpoint and a law enforcement standpoint, which, again, uh, they should because they're law enforcement officials. The same reason why I can look at orders or decisions that they make and say, man, I really disagree with that. But I look at it as a therapist and I don't get to make that call. I appreciate the division that happens there because – they need to make. I don't want them being a therapist, and they don't want me being a law enforcement official, yeah. right? And that they well, should. I had an officer tell me. He said, "Look, I don't give two craps whether you succeed or not." He said, "All I care about is that you don't reoffend on my shift." Yeah. And so, I mean, I think with it's two different. It's hard to be a therapist. I think because law enforcement basically wants to cover their own ass first, first, and then protect the public. Helping me reintegrate and be a decent human being is a distant third, you know, and a therapist is there generally trying to protect society and help protect society by helping me become a human, a decent human being. Well, it sounds like you had a bit of a mixed bag in therapy. What ended up working for you? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Part of it was time. Part of it was... I found that APMP in the prison system, it's a pendulum. It swings. Part of it's a lot of politics. Who knows why? But this last parole, I've had three. This last parole was really, really good. There was a big push for uh, rehabilitation to help people. And I had, I had a lot of shift leaders that believed in me that legitly, when I got out of prison this time, it's a really long story. Uh, I thought I was going to go back. Because I was I was accused of a crime I didn't do on a previous parole. I beat it in court. I passed a polygraph, had alibi witnesses and evidence, went to an evidentiary hearing at the board. The board said, we don't care that the court sided with you. We think you did it. Here's basically five more years. Mm-hmm. And so I got I got out this last time having done five years for a crime I didn't do on top of seven years for crimes I did do. And the board had tried several different ways to get me to admit guilt to that. And they'd finally opted at, well, we'll, we'll, they tried to have me do the therapy program again in the halfway house. And the therapy team at the prison cited, or sorry, at the prison, not the halfway house, cited with me and said, he wasn't convicted. He passed a polygraph, all the evidence, everything we've, we talked to him says he didn't do this. We're not going to make him redo a program. He's already successfully completed. So the board finally said, well, okay, the, the last thing we have is we'll parole him. We'll make him do the halfway. We'll do therapy on the, on the streets and threaten to take away his parole. So I got out expecting therapy to say, 
you have to admit guilt to this. And I'd go back the same day. In fact, when I met my shift leader, she saved my life. I'll say this. I've had a lot of bad experiences with APNP and the prison system in the past. This time around was really good. They were helpful. I The first time I met her, I said, look, let's just get this done and over with right now. I didn't do this. I'm not going to admit guilt to it. If I've got to admit guilt to it, can you just send me back now? Maybe I can get my housing back and my job back. And we had a really long talk. Uh, she at times would spend a couple hours helping me process stuff. And she said, you know, I remember one time fairly early on, she said, you know what, Mike, I believe you. And that floored me that she believed me that I didn't do my original crimes. I did needed to go to prison for that. That wasn't going to stop anytime soon. I realize that now. Needed to get arrested. Needed to go to prison. This time around, hurt. Because it... If admitting guilt to appease the board to something I didn't do invalidated all the effort I'd put in taking a responsibility and changing who I was up to then. So when your probation officer said, I believe you might... Yeah, it, it floored me. I, I was in tears. She said, I don't, I don't think you did this. And she said, I, I knew that you didn't do this when you just quietly told me I didn't do this. I'm not going to admit guilt to it. So if you got to send me back, send me back now. And so, and then they worked with me and the therapy team there was amazing. Things that have helped me in therapy. Um, Mike, I don't know if I can say his name. Sure. Mike yeah. Hadley. Probably. Yeah. He's a great man. Hanley. Hanley. Yeah. Super stud. Seriously, he he pulled me aside. He they tried to advocate for me, and and the board sent me there to do th to do therapy. They did an evaluation and said he doesn't need this. The board came back and said, "Screw you guys. We didn't send him there for evaluation. We sent him there to do therapy." And and I told Mike, I said, "Mike, I'm not admitting guilt to this." So, and he said, "Hold on, hold on." He's like, "Look, how about this? Y you and I both know you don't need this. You've already done sex offender therapy. You've completed that." but you just got done doing five years for a crime you didn't do. You probably have some strong feelings about that. The board's going to make you do therapy. How about we customize this to what you really need? So having a therapist believe me when the evidence actually said, there's a really good chance he didn't do this and say, okay, if that's something that you didn't do or something that you're not willing to process and work on now, Let's work on what can help you. And so he custom built a therapy program on what was really there. Mm. And so I, I did a whole therapy program in the halfway house that was not their normal program because the board said I had to do one. And they realized making me do a standardized cookie cutter program when I legitimately didn't do that and had already finished therapy for my original crimes was a waste of their time and mine, but we had to be there. So we might as well work on something. That was great. Well, not only that, but the, the whole starting things off, you know, I, I would assume for you at that point, starting things off again with now there's going to be this power and control fight over whether I'll admit it. And, and Oh, and I, I begged him. I, I remember that I was really scared and tears. And I said, Mike, it's, it takes me everything I got to maintain the fact that I didn't do this. And so please 
don't make me go through this whole program and get to the very last day and tell me that now I've got to admit guilt or else I'm going to go back because I'm not going to do it. And so I've had the rug yanked out from under me before. So I said, let's get that straight from the beginning. If you can, if you're okay with that, I said, I'd rather go back to prison right now today than have you okie doke me at the end. Mm -hmm. So as long as you're okay with the thought that I am never going to admit guilt to a crime I didn't do, wasn't, wasn't, didn't do and wasn't convicted of and proved that I didn't do. I've owned every single thing that I've done and it's a lot Yeah, and I'm not happy about it, but I was going to be damned if I was going to own something that I didn't do. It almost flies in the face of, of what you've learned throughout your treatment experience of, you know, take responsibility and accountability for what I have done and, you know, and put into place behavioral change thereafter. But if, if you're, if you're simply admitting to something that you didn't do to appease the powers that be, I mean, you're, you're in any event, you're, you're not telling the truth. Um, you're just kind of doing this to, it, it's almost like in your mind, it would be just jumping through the hoops. I'm just going through the motions, which is a, a, a betrayal of my commitment to this, this program. Right. Well, yeah. And what's the message about power and control yeah. and coercion? That's what I was you just going to say. Like yeah. You're on the other end of it. Yeah. Well, treatment, well, yeah, but treatment providers, I think, need to be very responsible with their decisions about this because, again, <clears throat> if I kick somebody out of a program, one of these programs, it's not, oh, you know, go, like go find another program. A lot of these guys go to prison off that, and and it, especially in the halfway house. If you're done, you're done. And I think you – and guys need that sometimes. I'm just saying you don't – I mean, if you're going to take things personal and – make personal decisions as to why guys are getting kicked out. Like I just don't like his attitude and boot him. Come on now. Like, well, yeah, think of, think of the message that you're sending there. Like I think Jeff was hitting on that. That's what I was thinking too, as you were talking about this, where earlier you mentioned, yeah, when I got into my offense, it was like a control thing. I felt like I had control. I thought I had had power, which ended in victims, you know, you being victimized, other people being victimized. So then you go into treatment to work on that. And the, the vibe is, well, now we're going to have power and control over you. And you're so they're basically teaching you, hey, even when you get out, it's all about power and control still. And that's that's what's helped this time is I've I've been in a lot of programs to where it was it felt that way. It was coerced. You're either gonna do this program or we're never going to the Board of Pardons told me after my after the first time I went back, they said if you do not successfully complete a therapy program in prison, we will not let you out. We will make you do every day of your time in prison. Or for some people that's life. So from my standpoint, it's in order to, I have to con- complete this in order to get any sort of freedom. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of programs that are intensive and inpatient in the prison or in halfway houses, it's really hard to do effective therapy, in my opinion, when it's coerced, when it's there's that threat of eminent loss of freedom at any given moment, especially when this is my opinion take what you want, throw the rest out. My opinion after 15 years of dealing with the system is that the prison, APNP, their primary concern is liability control. They don't want to get sued when eventually somebody screws up and somebody will always screw up when you're dealing with an entire group. So their primary concern is we don't get sued when some guy reoffends. 
Their secondary concern, a distant one, is we don't want somebody to get victimized. And then finally, third is maybe we should help this guy be a better person and stay out of prison. Which is which is crazy to me. Yeah, because if you look at that, if you were to flip those priorities, taking care of you and making you the priority would automatically take care of the other two. Right. And <laughs> yeah. so when people, yeah. when, when therapists or, or system prison systems or halfway houses come across with that power control, we have all the power and you're going to do it or else. Man, I, I, I had people tell me and I've, I, after years of therapy, I would tell new guys that came in, I would say, you know what? And if in this type of a therapy situation, I always say, start with the truth. And if they don't believe that, tell them what they want to hear. Because they're going to, you're going to go back to prison or you're not going to get out anyway. That's kind of what I was hoping you could maybe just expand on a little bit is just if, if, you know, there's any clients listening to this, people that, you know, are going through the program, having done as much time as you have and having had the experiences you just shared with us, what, like, I guess in addition to what you just said, what what advice would you give them? People listening, like, how, how do you make it through the treatment process? Uh, what would you look for in a treatment provider if you have that option? What, um, that kind of thing. Okay. I found my experience in my own life. I always tell people, be honest. Just from the get-go, it's scary as shit. It is frightening, especially if you have uncharged victims. If you have uncharged crimes, it is scary as shit to tell a therapist, here's what I did. I think therapists need to really coach their clients on how not to get themselves in trouble, what information you shouldn't share. I've had therapists cut me off and say, uh, stop, I don't want to hear that, and then let me know. If you, if you continue to tell me those details, I'm required to report that. So please don't tell me those details Let's just find a way to help you with this. So I would say, I tell clients, first off, be honest. Talk to your therapist about how you can go about being honest from the get-go. Because what you don't want to do is get a reputation for not being honest and and failing polygraphs. And that whole cycle of now you're trying to, you held something back. And they're like, okay, well, there was this. And then you got to take a polygraph. And then you're then like, Three days later, you're, oh, crap, man, there, there was something else I forgot. And maybe you're, maybe you legitly didn't lie to them and keep it back, but you remembered something, and that sucks. I've been in that situation to where it's like, oh, shit, I got to go back and tell them this. And then two days later, you remember something else, and you're like, oh, damn it, I got to tell them this. So I found if you're just honest from the get-go, it saves you a lot of time and effort. Talk to your therapist about how to go be about being honest and not get new charges or get sent back to prison. And therapists, I think, really need to coach them on that. Um, things that have also helped me were therapists that treated me like a human being. Um, man, the first time a therapist shared a personal story about their life with me instead of just like, it sucks when all I'm doing is dumping and then you're asking me questions. And so it's always about me. And I'm, I, I feel like I'm throwing out everything about me and I got no idea of who you are other than a redheaded dude with a beard who's big and kind of intimidating looking. 
first time I had a therapist actually share a story about his own life and his own family. I don't know how that works in the therapy setting with your legal ramifications, but that meant a great deal to me. The first time a therapist, this floored me. This was actually in a county jail. I was doing a therapy program in a county jail, and I'd shared something with a therapist, I think in an individual session, and two days later, he called me up to the bubble and said, hey, Mike, I was thinking about you on the way home the other day and what you said. We've been talking about how I was going to deal with I have a son and an ex-wife and how I was going to go about trying to get some reintegration and be a part of my son's life. And it floored me, it absolutely floored me that off the clock, on his way home, my therapist was thinking about something that I said and took the time to call me up and say, hey, I thought about what you shared. I think you should do this. This is how I think you should handle talking to your ex-wife. So being humanized. Yeah. Some, someone taking the time when they don't have to to think about me and, and meant a great deal. The first time a prison guard said my name, called me by my first name, I almost tripped over my own feet. I'd never had a prison guard. I, I was seven, eight years in before a prison guard actually called me by my first name <clears throat> instead of my last name, you know? So that means that means a great deal. A therapist that smiles at me and isn't afraid to shake my hand. At one point in my prison stay, I had, I had been sending letters trying to get into the therapy program in the prison. I mean, because it's it's a wait and sometimes it's three, four years before you can get into therapy. So you're writing, ask you, you have to write therapy program and say, you'd want to do therapy and they'll say, sure, we'll put you on a list. So I've been writing the director for a couple of years trying to get into therapy. And then the day came where I was getting ready to start therapy and I finally met the guy and I said, Oh, you're so-and-so. And he said, yeah. And I said, Oh, I've been writing you letters. And I stuck my hand out to shake his hand. Deadpan face, no expression, looked at me, looked at my hand, then went back to talking with me and just ignored that my hand is sitting out there to shake my, to shake. Wow. And I just remember thinking, okay, oh, I I see who you are. I get this. I'm, I'm that guy. I'm, I'm a number and a, and a, I'm the perpetrator. Got it. I'm something filthy that you can't, don't want to touch. Maybe he's a hypochondriac. I don't know, but it came across as I got shit on my forehead. And, and a lot of times in, in therapy and in dealing with the system, you, I think you see that. I, I, I look at people and they'll start looking at me and talking to me, therapists, prison guards, board members. And the first thought that I get in my head is, you think I, it's like you're looking at me like I've got shit wiped on my forehead. Have you ever actually had shit on your forehead? <laughs> no, no, no. But it's that it's that mild look of disguised disgust. Well, it's not sure. for it's not for everybody, man. Uh, Je- you know, Je- Jeff has said this before, and he just said, you know, some people ought to not work with felons. And I, sometimes I I feel like sex offender providers. It's like the island of misfit therapists. Sometimes, like they they're not skilled enough in other areas, and so this is where they find themselves. And I think. This is actually one of those we going back to what was this the original podcast first one we talked about dispassionate compassion that's right yeah it, it there's a unique mixture of a, a type of of people who have um, 
are able to work effectively with you guys. Like you mentioned Hanley, he's a master at it. And, and, and I think having learned a lot from him and integrated that into our own philosophy, you can't, you can't approach it like that. I can't be an authoritarian, confrontational, treat you like shit and make you kind of, you know, it's just not effective. And I, and my appeal to anybody approaching it like that is I just don't think you're doing yourself any good or any of the offenders any good or society as a whole any good by maintaining your, your, um, career in that field and of that, of that population. So I think you either, you know, there's a lot of evidence-based practices out there that have been proven to be effective and your approach certainly doesn't need to be, I mean, it's not like saying let clients walk all over you either. That's not my suggestion. My suggestion is, um, what you're exactly talking about, treat you like a human being. You certainly had made some very poor decisions in your history. I think we all can acknowledge that. <laughs> yeah. You breathtakingly than, stupid decisions. Right, you more than anybody, but your value as an individual is much more than your decisions that you've made in the past. And the only way that you can integrate back into the, into the community and not go back to that behavior is by, Helping you, re- helping you achieve the type of person you are, reach that potential. And I can't do that by beating you down emotionally constantly or just, you know, and just assuming you have shit on your face. But having somebody on my side, like. But speaking I, of which, you have a little shit on your face. I'm kidding. No, dude. but like, so like therapists. So having somebody on my side helps. I mean, therapy's good. And I take the mindset if I got to do it anyway, my, I got to do it and I got to pay for it. Might as well get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Going through this system, it wasn't my primary concern. My primary concern was I've got a parole officer that on a whim can wreck my life. Keeping him happy far outweighed anything else. I'll bet. Because it doesn't matter how successful I am in therapy. If I'm doing well, eh, he gets in a fight with his girlfriend and they don't make up, then someone's going to pay the price for that. And I don't want that to be me. Mm-hmm. So having a therapist, I mean, Mace is my primary therapist and has worked with me the most. Um, I've had my issues. I've had some some violations. I during the course of this parole, I've, I've looked at porn and had to had to come clean with that and had to talk to a my scared silly about how I'm going to bring this up to a parole officer because you don't have the same rapport with a parole officer that you do with a therapist. And that's scary from my mind because I real in the past I've had my opinion is APMP swats flies with sledgehammers, um, so they're gonna they're gonna deal with the problem, but you're not gonna like the solution most of the time. Mm-hmm. And Mace has often said, "Okay, let me handle this. I'm I'm your middleman. I'm your advocate. You've told me. Let me phrase this right." And it's and I, I realized I, I stayed actually I'm still doing therapy to a lesser extent, even though I'm done with therapy. I've, I'm, I've expirated my sentence. I'm not required to do it. I still come here because I really want the help. And I realized early on in this parole, I'm more likely to succeed on parole if I've got someone that can talk to can be an intermediary between me and APNP. Mm-hmm. Because if I sit in my, if I sit in the, in, in across that desk from my agent, trying to explain to him why I was looking at porn, 
Well, I just you, look that never ends well. You, that always looks bad. But if I have a therapist that can say, mm-hmm. let me bring this up, I gotta tell him anyway, because I'm required to. Mm-hmm. But we can do this in a way that will minimize his reaction. You had to trust Mace in order to do that though. Yeah. Well, and the 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 deal is it's not as if we're lying to APMP about this. I we I think we frame it in a therapeutic context. You're not wrong. I mean, I you know, so clients are always going to have their opinions of the probation officers or the parole officers, and I, I'm not going to take that away from you. Our opinions are very different, obviously. I have you know really good relationships with these guys. At least I feel you know it's working relationships. I don't hang out with anybody, um, but uh, that. I think having the relationship with both of you is very important. And in the context of, hey, a guy organically came forward and said, I'm struggling with pornography. I need to work on this. Therapeutically, that's that's really important. And um, yes, does this increase risk? Of course it does. We're not going to lie about that. Do I think he needs to be kicked out of the program? Not yet. Um, there's nothing to indicate that discharge is recommended. We need to work on this. He brought it forward. Let's honor his admission to this. Let's move forward. What are some things you maybe want to see in place? Maybe they want to see a polygraph, whatever, to confirm you know this, that, or the other. Um, and and then we move forward from this. So can can we create a response to this that's uh, ordinate to what the what the action was? And then move forward in treatment, right? Rather than reactionary um, and and saying, "Man, this guy's super high risk." And and again, I think therapists too much personalize that stuff. Like they they somehow failed because you looked at porn, um, and then they get reactionary and and say, "Well, we're gonna boot him." <laughs> Not a good move. And so, I mean, I I appreciate you saying that too. You know, I mean, it, it, and I don't. I, I try to tell clients. You're not obligated to like your PO. You're not. And sometimes you won't. Sometimes you guys have had horrible interactions with law enforcement officials. I'm not going to try to change your opinions about it. What I do say is, though, you have to attend to that relationship. It's an important relationship. It doesn't mean you have to like the person, but it is yeah. an important relationship. It does have to be a functional relationship, and you have to attend to it. So as an advocate, yeah, I think that's an important component of it. Yeah, I'm just looking for reasonableness when it comes to APNP. That's all I want, man. I like to say, look, you don't you don't have to invite me to a barbecue, but if you could not burn a cross on my lawn, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like yeah. we don't gotta be buddies, but at least help me try to succeed. And it sounds like things have gotten a lot better. And it's uh, from ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, good. I know I have my own negative opinions at times. I will say this. APMP did right by me this time. That's this time good. around, I ended up miraculously getting about five good agents in a row that were just people that would allow me to succeed and believe that I could. Mm-hmm. And it it worked. It helped. And oh. I tell them, I mean, what I, for other, you know, felons or people trying to go into this system, I say use your therapist. Let your therapist be your friend because – Again, my opinion is the only thing that APMP truly cares about is liability control and not getting sued when when someone screws up. Mm-hmm. So who are they more like – if I sit behind his desk and say, look, I know I violated and looked at porn or did drugs or drank alcohol or whatever the violation, but I think I'm doing really well, 
he doesn't believe that. He doesn't want to have to go to his supervisor and say, hey, my client's committing new crimes. That's what he's scared of because he doesn't want to get fired. Mm-hmm. He needs somebody that can take the blame for him. Right. So if I look at porn or I do something stupid and I come to my therapist and my therapist can sit across from that desk and say, yes, he looked at porn or did drugs or did this, but here's how he's doing in therapy and he's come forward. I think he's doing well. My agent's more likely to believe that because then he can pass it off and tell his supervisor, if I do screw up, well, the therapist said he was good. Yeah. And I think from a client's perspective, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, that might be a, a, a point where... It's a we, bit jaded. Well, no. Again, I mean, yeah, I can't I can't speak to your personal experience. I think APMP, their primary emphasis is obviously protection to the community. And there is liability working with offenders, the end. I mean, you, you know, you're... And so liability does become a concern because... Um, they're responsible in to some degree, and they're going to make decisions based on that. Uh, but and in the end, they're going to try to say, to what degree is this guy a risk or not a risk to the community? Make a decision based off that. But that's a good story, man. I mean, I really appreciate you coming on tonight. Thanks. Yeah, let's wrap this up. Though, oh, Justin, hey, I was going to throw one more question. I just kind sure. of a closing thought here because we've talked about <clears throat> kind of like what what clients can do if they're getting enrolled in therapy, you know, how to approach that or what therapists can do. I just wanted to get your thoughts on, let's say, social work students or someone getting into the field or someone just not going into the field, but just Mr. Joe, Joe Blow out in the community that doesn't know much about this. I just wonder what you would want to tell them about what it's like on your end, kind of going through that situation, you know, kind of getting back out into reintegrating into life, what that's been like, what you what you would just want the general public to know about what that's like for you. It's scary. I would say that like some some people, a very small percentage of offenders don't give a crap about changing. I think most felons, regardless of their charges, most of them just want to be a decent human being. They want to have a normal life. Maybe not be a decent human being. They want a normal life. And so... Man, I would say, talk to some, judge me based on how I'm treating you right now. You don't got to be stupid. Like if, if a guy's got issues with kids, you don't have him babysit your kids, but you can let him do your taxes for you. You can let him change the oil on your car. You know, if the guy's got issues with, with alcohol, so you don't give him a job as a bartender, but you can, you can let him paint your house. So, and you gotta, you don't, you don't. Play to people's areas of strength, not their areas of weakness. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just some people want to change. If you could let them do that, I'd appreciate it. I also get that as a sex offender, this is my burden and it's something I got to deal with and I can't obligate you to take that on. I've met, I mean, I'm dating now and so I've, I've met Holla. people. <laughs> I've met people that were okay with it, and have been like, you know what, you're a really good guy. I've I've learned that once you get to know somebody, man, if you could give before you write somebody off or, or kick them out or say something awful to them, if you could just spend ten minutes worth enough time to have a beer with them, 
you might find out that they're a decent human being. So there's going to be felons in the community. Handful of those felons don't care. Fine with going back to prison. The vast majority of the felons really want to be successful. We're not doing ourselves as a community member any favors by not at least giving the template for success. I mean, we're not going to do it for you, but marginalizing you and making it nearly impossible based on your history doesn't make our community a safer place. If, if we create an environment where, again, it makes sense for you to commit more crimes because normal life is impossible because of all these barriers, well, then it's going to make sense versus can we just create a template for you to succeed is, is where right. we Because, I mean, what's my motivation to act like a decent human being if you won't allow me to have a decent life? If I can't have a job that pays me enough, if I can't live in a safe environment, if I can't meet people who are meaningful, uh, what what's the point of existing in the community when I could go back to prison and hang out with my buddies? Yeah. Yeah. That's the scary part of prison is it's doable. Yeah. It's well, not It's not that, that it's violent. It's that, eh, it's not as well, good you, as And you know what thought. to expect. There's, uh, I would assume on some level it's predictable. You know, I know what I'm yeah. going to get. It's just like you said, uh, at least lay out a path for me to have a chance to succeed. I liked how you worded it as far as, you know, it's my burden. It's what I got to work on. The idea would be felons deal a lot with just this eternal kick in the teeth not only that once you get out and we're going to make it extra harder on you now that you're out like yeah, yeah we're not really setting people up to get a chance to get back on their feet and give them a break well, that's what i would say let give somebody a job maybe uh, you're uh, i'm just gonna say like you're you're clearly a reasonable man you know I, I think it's awesome that you came on here you know you're the first i guess former client that's come on as a guest and the stuff you've had to say is huge you know i think it's Thanks. uh mm-hmm. I think it's big for people looking to fix their own lives. You know, I think it's good for people listening to this. That maybe are where you were a few years back. And it's good for therapists and community members to hear somebody like you represent yourself as well as you do. And uh, maybe maybe change some minds about the way that we treat this problem. You know? I hope so. I mean... We gotta have you back, man. You okay with that? <laughs> yeah, you're I'm you're a good guest, man. You can bring your lady yeah. friend. I heard she's. <laughs> hey, uh, if she wants to go, I heard she's I'll, intelligent. I'll, she's a pretty smart lady. Yeah, she's pretty cool. Yeah, um, yeah. If Joe Rogan, if you're listening to this, by the way, I don't know why you'd keep on having lamos come on your freaking podcast and talk about sexual abuse and they don't know anything about it. I'm just saying, we know quite a bit <laughs> about it. I mean, I'm largest provider in the state of utah just saying no I mean, big deal no big no big deal though i mean just to have comedians talk about that stuff they know way more uh, obviously so just saying bro mike appreciate you coming on hey, anytime. all right we'll Great. wrap thanks this up thanks a lot brother That does it for the episode 10, Guerrilla Social Work Podcast. We want to thank you for tuning in. We also want to thank our guest, Mike, for coming on, sharing some information about his story. Really appreciate it. Uh, next week, we are going to have some gentlemen from Triple S Systems coming in to talk about how statistics and data and science and all that mumbo-jumbo, which I would call mumbo-jumbo. That's, that's probably kind of insulting, but to me over my head so i don't get it but anyways they're going to come on they're going to talk about how this actually can help us determine what a client needs to work on what would be in their best interest to work on and what how it will actually help 
improve outcomes for clients. So benefits everybody. So we're going to talk about that next week. In the meantime, if you'd be so kind, go on to Facebook, go on to Twitter, go on to Instagram. Please look us up on there. Gorilla Social Work Podcast. It's G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. Gorilla Social Work Podcast. Like us, follow us, do whatever it is you love to do on the social media stuff. And please share us with your buddies. Help spread the word so we can keep the listeners growing. That sounds weird. Keep the listener base growing. Listenership growing. You get the idea. I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyways, help spread the word. We really appreciate you tuning in. We've been getting an awesome response so far. Other than that, we will see you next week. Bye-bye.